G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. I think when we go in this conversation too, a lot of people think that we're always trying to convince everyone to become an entrepreneur. Like, I'm never trying to convince everyone to go quit your job and become an entrepreneur. I'm talking to people that have that thing in their heart that's saying to them, like, I want to go be my own boss. I want to go be an entrepreneur, right? Then you should then you absolutely should, right? If you're happy being a nine to five employee, if you're happy going and clocking in and clocking out and you can take your nights and weekends and they're on you and you enjoy that and that makes you happy, then, then, then no one's convincing you to be an entrepreneur. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Joe Evangelisti. Joe is the founder of theflipking.com and operatortoown.com, host of the Flip King real estate radio show, and a real estate investor who specializes in flips and new builds in South Jersey. Joe is a dedicated veteran who served in the US Navy Construction Battalion, and since 2004, when he left, the Navy, Joe began working in real estate. He worked as a construction project lead, a general contractor, a real estate broker and owner, and a developer. And he has helped build, renovate, and sell millions of dollars worth of residential real estate. Today, Joe and his team have flipped over 1,000 houses and has done over $10 million annually in flips. And to top it all off, his team consistently sells over $20 million worth of real estate each and every year. He's made key hires to remove himself from the day-to-day operations, and now he spends his time as a strategic advisor and visionary to his own companies. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show uh, to share his incredible insight and story, but enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Joe. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me out. Great intro. Hey, my my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, The first question off the rank that I ask all my guests is rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Oh, as a kid, I always had multiple jobs. I grew up on uh, construction sites. My dad was a drywall contractor. And uh, so my first dollars were made like uh, pushing drywall scraps around and filling up uh, dumpsters with drywall scraps. I was always cleaning up drywall and covered head to toe in dust. So that was my first, <laughs> that was my first dollars. <laughs> You're doing it as a, as a young age? Is your dad getting you out on site? Uh, 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 as soon as I could walk. I remember, I remember being on dry, uh, construction sites cleaning up pieces of drywall and I would hold on to my dad's leg when I whenever he started having conversations and I would get nervous around like like adults I would grab my dad's leg because I was nervous so I, that's how young I was I was probably three or four wow. years old yeah wow yeah. wow yeah. well mate walk, walk me through the journey uh, I mentioned in the introduction you are a veteran um, tell me how you got you know from you know from school into the US Army and then into sorry the Navy I should say and then now into where you are today and building a huge empire uh, as a real estate entrepreneur yeah, you know, uh, you know, everyone has mentors. Everyone has people that they uh, they learn from and they grow from, and, and I'm no different. And when I was uh, working for my dad in my late teen years, um, I always knew I, I had a, a kind of a drive to want to get into the military. And I was lucky enough that my dad, at the time, uh, one of his foremans in his general contracting company was a a, a not a retired, but also a uh, um, uh, um, excuse me, a uh, drawing a blank reservist. He was a retired reservist senior chief uh navy uh cb right so he was a builder in the navy for 20 years and he retired and now he was in the reserves and uh he was like my boss at the time kind of because i was working part-time with my dad uh, with his company and so i knew i wanted to go in the military i didn't really know where i kind of i thought maybe i wanted to be a marine i thought maybe i'd go out and become a sniper or something shoot guns but i had this construction background i didn't know you could do construction in the military and uh dave was his name dave at the time was my kind of like my boss and he you know he said no you can go do construction you could build in the navy and i'm like in the navy that's like there's boats ships and you know that's on, on the ocean like what am i going to build And he said no you can build and do construction on land and fly everywhere in the air and go from site to site and then there you know you stay on land so he introduced me to the concept of the u.s navy cbs uh, and then through his guidance, I actually, you know, went through a delayed entry program after after high school, and uh, inevitably became a, a U.S. Navy CB, CB builder. You know, so awesome! It was awesome. awesome. And how long how long were you in the in the Navy for? I served uh, just under six years. Um, 
and uh, you know, probably the best, uh, some of the best years of my life. I, had, I traveled all over the place. I got to do some amazing things. I was in some amazing stations, and um, you know, just just an exciting time in my life. I, you know, I I learned a whole lot while I was in there. I grew, and and you know, I learned self discipline. I I was able to um, you know expand my leadership capabilities. I, I met countless people that are still in my life today, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for my for for the world. It was a great experience. Did you get your sea legs at all? No, no, I never. I, 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 the closest thing I've come to a ship is like like the uh, you know the retired ships that they have in, in port that I get to go visit and and walk on and take a tour. I've never I've never been on a moving ship in my life. I wouldn't know. What oh I wow, would, okay, yeah, that's no. that's interesting. Uh, in a former life, I never I was not part of the navy, but I was a, a deckhand working in the south of France for the mega wealthy, and I actually crossed the Atlantic Ocean on this big yacht. Nice. And, uh, I. I uh, I remember being very seasick. Like there's there's nice. cruising around the Mediterranean in sort of con- con- you know confined waters, and then open sea was just like I I really learned quickly that I'm not, not I'm not a seaman, and and I I you know they say the best cure for seasickness is an oak tree because it's not land, right? Yeah. So you just well, uh, yeah. I should say that since then I've had the opportunity, gratefully enough and gratefully so, I've had the opportunity to rent. Uh, and charter 100 foot yachts multiple occasions with friends of mine and and nice. tour like the Bahamas and then so like I've been on real real you know big ships like that and uh, so that was amazing so I mean I, I grew up around boats and I love the sea and I love being out on the ocean but I've just never been on a military ship I've never been right. on one painted gray right. before so uh, I like white ones though the white ones are nice yeah. well <laughs> if you had any deckhands on board in your Caribbean trips that would have what I the job I would have been serving in, in back in my, my time it was, nice. it was a lot of fun nice. so um but mate look uh, also in and around joining the the, the Navy was it a was it a way for you were you like a rebellion kid or something like were you you know do you needed something to set you straight or was it more just so you had an interest in going into into the service no, you know, I don't know. Call me patriotic. Call me just uh, stupid or uh, call me. I, I don't know. I just I just always had this feeling growing up that I wanted to be in the military. I just my dad what didn't serve like I it skipped a generation. My dad and uncle didn't serve. But but before that, uh, I had I had uncles and I had uh, grandparents, multiple levels of uh, my, my the generation before my dad uh, all, you know, my, my grandfather had like six brothers and uh, all of them served and so there was a lot of lineage of service in my family. So I just had a calling for it. I, I can't really explain it. I just knew growing up for some reason, I always knew I'd be in the military and, you know, it just kind of happened. It was a niche, right? It was a niche. Yeah, it was a niche. Yep. I scratched it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you built today. Like it's, it's such a big, well, I don't know if it is a big leap, but mentally it must've been a bit of a big leap going from the Navy. You've come out of the Navy. How'd you choose real estate? Like, I know you would have been in and around it as a, as a kid growing up with drywalling stuff and doing hands, you know, using your hands to build stuff for the Navy. But how did you, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be a business owner. Because that's a lot of people coming out of the army may not necessarily know how to do that or have the, the mindset to want to do that. Yeah. The, the, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. The, the transition to the business owner entrepreneur thing was a heck of a lot more difficult than the actual real estate piece. Like, because I've been doing construction and, you know, uh, all types of construction. I mean, huge concrete pours to to kitchens and bathrooms and additions and electrical and, you know, you name it. Um, a construction piece of it was second nature to me. I mean, carpentry and all that stuff is second nature. So that piece was the easy piece. But the, the, the real uncomfortable piece for me was 
becoming a business owner, starting an LLC, like having to go out and put my name on things and guarantee things and take risks and, you know, stuff that, that I had never done before. So that was the big transition for me when I, when I first got out, I mean, I spent a couple of years in, in, uh, working for, um, the U S government in a, a project management capacity you touched on, but, um, pretty quickly after that, I ended up back in New Jersey. Um, it's kind of quick, funny story. My, my, I was in, I was, I had a great job down in, down in Washington, DC. And, and that's when I kind of met my wife who's from New Jersey. And I have, we have this joke that, that her umbilical cord was never cut and it doesn't stretch very far. So she can't, <laughs> she can't be away from her mother. And, uh, she moved down with me in Washington, DC. And after about six months of living with me, we ended up back in New Jersey because we were going back and forth so much to visit her parents. I love her parents, by the way. It's part of one of the biggest reasons I married her. Um, and so, um, so now we're back in New Jersey and, and just right away, I realized like, you know what, if I'm not going to work for the government, which I, I always love doing, uh, and there's really no government, big, big high paying jobs, government related in, in this area. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to get back into the real estate game, which I've always loved. And, and I'm going to have to become an entrepreneur. I'm going to have to work for myself. I'm going to, you know, I already know the construction aspect. And uh, ironically, this was in 07. That's when I started, which was literally, literally the edge of the crash. Uh, and I was doing my first flip when the market, you know, slammed shut on us. Um, and it was the perfect time to, in my opinion, in hindsight, of course, it didn't feel like the perfect time at the time, but it was the perfect time to learn how to do this game because it taught us how to do it the right way. It taught us how to be conservative. It taught us how to, how to, how, to, how to find the right deal and not, you know, just, just at a whim, throw a dart at a board. And it taught us how to make sure that we, we can, you know, we negotiated correctly and we, and we kept our costs low and we made sure that everything was right. And, you know, so when you're starting to learn on when the market's going down, and in my opinion, it's what kept us, you know, doing so well through all these years, because we didn't do it when it was easy. We did it when it was absolutely the hardest uh, for our right. first couple of deals. So that's and to talk to yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. To talk to me a little bit about the, the you know, that, we talk a little bit about that mind shift. You know, you, 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 it's just more like, oh, I need to get back to Jersey. But how, tell me how big of a of a leap was it for you to to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go. You know, eat, I can only eat what I what I kill, right? Like, you know, I, I'm now responsible for my own paycheck, and it's a huge mental leap for a lot of entrepreneurs out there to go from a steady paycheck, particularly working for someone like like yourself working in the government, because I'm sure there's a lot of perks and good good health benefits and all that sort of stuff, 401ks. So to wean yourself off that paycheck and, and, and to know that you had the resolve and the know-how to make it happen, what, you know, what, how, did that, how did you cross that bridge? Um, well, that's a good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I think it's always been, I've always been really, really driven. I, I think the thing is when you look at a lot of entrepreneurs, like you have to be, a, you have to be willing to, to, to believe in yourself. You have to be willing to take action at some point. And you have to know that, that there's not a safety net. There's not always going to be a safety net. You know, you have to, you have to go out there and, and, and be willing to pounce. And you know what, sometimes what's the worst that can happen? You know, at that time, you know, I mean, not everyone has this, but at that time I was 27 years old. I had had, I'd had a career with the military. I had had a couple dollars saved up. I was by, by no means was I wealthy or had a lot of money, but like I had enough that I could do a few projects. And if things went south, I could still 
move back in with my parents and get a job if I had to. You know, I was young. Um, you know, I just gotten married. I did just was a newlywed, and there was probably a lot of fallbacks I could have. But you know, I was all in. Like I was a thousand percent committed. There was no failing that that opportunity. And I think when when you go all in and you know that there's no turning back, like you're burning the ships and you're you're going you're going after it. Like you have to be that committed that there is no turning back. And when you have that commitment, you know that there's nothing but action to take. And you're going to you're going to stumble. You're going to stumble and learn, stumble and learn, stumble and grow. And 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 eventually, when you push past a lot of adversity, and adversity doesn't doesn't stop when you become successful, as you know. Um, you know, you just you just find more of it, and you know, you you just keep growing past it. And inevitably, you you, you start to get to a higher level. And um, you know, I think that's that's one of the biggest challenges for people that are on the fence is that they don't, they don't just, you know, make that determination that they're going to believe in themselves. Um, you know, they, they think that there's going to be some safety net. Entrepreneur, there is no safety net for entrepreneurs. There is no guarantee. There's nobody going to stand over your head and say, hey, you know, I'll hold this string up and, and you, you grab onto it and I'll carry you across the, you know, the river. It's not going to happen. You know, you, it, you are the only one you can rely on. So when you start believing in yourself and you start taking that action, um, that's when it becomes powerful. And you know, you learn from your mistakes. No, and I think you you also just hit the nail on the head in terms of you got to if you're going to back anyone, want to back yourself, right? Yeah, like absolutely. that's you know, if you're going to put the chips anywhere, put them behind yourself. Yeah. And, and know that you have the when your back's against the wall. I remember when I first moved to the United States, I didn't know anyone. I didn't didn't go to school here. I had to pound the pavement to get a job, and I got one. And I remember just going, oh my gosh, like this is, uh, my, 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 my pull cord was, oh, I'll have to move back to Australia and I've got to get another job. Okay, that's, that's the worst that can happen, right? Yeah. Same with you. Like you're like, well, the worst that can happen is I move back with my parents and I get another job. Okay, that's, that's, yeah. not the, that's not the worst thing. And I think the big thing that, the underlying thing is the regret part, right? Like if you didn't do it, yeah. you don't do it now and you wake up in 65 and go, gosh, I wish I'd done that. Yeah. And you know, I, 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 that, that's, that's what fills me with so much fear is that, uh, inevitability of like, if I don't take action now, I'm going to regret it in the future and I'm going to be real pissed at myself. Yeah. And, and it sounds like something, something similar to the mindset that you have. I think when we go in this conversation too, a lot of people think that we're always trying to convince everyone to become an entrepreneur. Like I'm never trying to convince everyone to go quit your job and become an entrepreneur. I'm talking to people that have that thing in their heart that's saying to them, like, I want to go be my own boss. I want to go be an entrepreneur, right? Then you should then you absolutely should, right? If you're happy being a nine to five employee, if you're happy going and clocking in and clocking out and you can take your nights and weekends and they're on you and you enjoy that and that makes you happy, then, then, then no one's convincing you to be an entrepreneur, right? But if you have that heart, that heartbeat that says, I have to be an entrepreneur, then you are gonna regret it if you don't give it a try. And here's the thing, if you think that you have a level of comfort because you have a steady paycheck, because you have a nine to five, then you are lying to yourself because your boss could go bankrupt tomorrow. Your company could be gone tomorrow. There's so many things that could be happening that you don't even know about that you're not even aware of that could be pulled out from underneath of you on Friday. So you're, 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 it's, it's, you're, you're, you're conditioning yourself to believe that there's a safety net that's not even existent. It's not even existent. So you might as well go chase your dreams. You might as well believe in yourself because you're believing in something that, that might not even exist. Right, or in the future, right, or tomorrow or Friday, whenever, whatever that is. No, it's, it's so true. And, and I think it's more to do with 
taking the blinders off and being, you know, everyone's been told a story. Like you got to go through university, school, you got to get good grades, you got to go do, you know, university, whatever it is, whatever the path may be, you got to get this mm-hmm. job. And then hopefully at 65, you're going to retire and then live your life, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, 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 and to your point, not everyone listening to this show is going to be an entrepreneur. Most people who are listening to this show will be an entrepreneur. But it's back to that, you know, you wanted to be in the US Navy, you had that itch. I had the itch to go be an entrepreneur. You had the itch to go be an entrepreneur and you did it and you acted on it and you backed yourself, which is really awesome. So um, so kudos to you, man. Tell me now a little bit, of pivoting a little bit into your business and in, in what you've created today. Like walk walk me maybe through that first deal all the way through how you've built, you know, you're flipping a thousand units, a thousand units, a thousand houses a year and the teams and systems that you've had to build. Again, you haven't gone to business school. You, you you went to you were in the U.S. In the Army, you know, or the yeah, Navy, and yeah, yeah. you know, you didn't. You probably had to learn by trial and error, right? Well, yeah. Let me backtrack. So first, we're not doing a thousand a year. We've done over a thousand. Oh, got but, it. Sorry, sorry. But, but we're probably doing we're, we're doing well over a hundred a year right now between our wholesale and our retail business. Um, I'm sorry, our wholesale and our rehab rehab business, and probably a couple hundred if you add the retail division, obviously with the sales. Um, but um, it, it, you know, it all started. I mean, the very beginning, we were doing. Um, uh, I, I did them totally by hand, which is, you know, obviously not the, the way I suggest doing it. It was good as a learning experience. I had no idea what I was doing. I went in and physically, uh, I had a partner on the first uh, three deals and, and those deals, we physically went in and I did all the carpentry. I did all the paint, the drywall, the cabinets, the trim, the floors, anything carpentry related. Um, and my business partner, windows, siding, roof, all that stuff. A business partner did the HVAC, the electric, the plumbing, anything uh, mechanical related. And it took us, um, I'll never forget the first deal we did, uh, it took us 12 weeks, nights and weekends. We both had jobs that first that first uh, project and we would do it from 5 p.m. till midnight every night and then all weekend long. And it took us 12 weeks and I actually got married on week 10. And it was, it was uh, him and I and our two wives to the point where on my on the week of my wedding, my wife went to get her hair done and the, and, the, and the hairdresser literally said to her like, no more painting for you. There's paint in your hair and you can't get married next week with paint in your hair. So you got to stop painting. Um, and then I came immediately back from my honeymoon and like sanded floors on the 4th of July weekend. It was 110 degrees. Anyway, long story short, we did the first couple by hand. And then I, I quickly realized that A, we can never scale this thing if we keep doing it by hand. B, we were doing them with 25% down. Um, and doing them old school with the bank and putting our money down in them. And I was like, dude, I'm three houses deep and I have my entire life savings in three houses and I had partners on them. And, you know, how, how long can we do this? I'm, you know, there's no, there's no way to leverage this thing or scale it. Um, and that's when I started to learn about private money and how to, how to leverage other people's money and how to help create good returns for them while creating good returns for us. And, you know, started to really expand that whole knowledge of the business um, where I could flip houses and I could, um, you know, do it without my own cash invested and all that, all that, you know, happy, happiness. Um, and that, and that's when it started to really hit me. Like I can't do these by hand. I started hiring general contractors. I started hiring subcontractors. I was managing a lot of the other stuff myself, but then quickly we went from doing five, six, seven houses a year. We went to doing 25 houses a year, almost overnight. Um, you know, within, within two years we were doing that many and I was doing it by myself and within, Within three or four years, I found myself working as a full-time real estate agent and a full-time uh, house flipper. And what happened in, almost instantly at that point, that was probably the biggest aha moment, life change occurrence for me, which was I realized at that point, and I almost had kind of a, a, almost a breakdown at that point, which was it was only me and an assistant. 
and I was doing a lot of volume. I was doing, God knows how many resale real estate transactions. I was probably doing 50 or 60 of those myself. And then I was doing 20 or 30 uh, rehab flips a year myself. And I was doing it with one assistant. And I remember having a conversation with my mentor and I was like, dude, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, I'm making really good money, but I never feel like I have any money. I feel like I'm broke all the time because as quick as it comes in, it goes right out the back door. Right. And, and I'm, I was just starting my family at the time. I was never home. I was that guy who everyone said, Oh my God, you're doing so well. You're so successful. You're driving a nice car. Oh my God, Joe, I want to be like you. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be like me. I'm working a hundred hours a week. I'm never home for dinner. I, I, I've never seen my family. I have a brand new baby. I barely ever, I, 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 I get home in time to put her to bed. And I was like, like, this is not where I want to be. Like everyone thinks this is success, but to me, I'm burnt out and I don't want to do it anymore. So I remember having a call with my mentor at that time. And I said to him, like, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I feel like Superman. I'm like jumping in a, in Clark Kent. I'm like jumping in a, in a phone booth in the middle of the day. I'm taking off my suit because I'd be a realtor in the morning. I'm taking my suit off, put on my jeans and my t-shirt. I go to the projects. I'd be running projects. I'd have a checkbook in my pocket. I had a scheduling the projects. I'd be running to Home Depot and picking out tile and paint and like, like, dude, I can't even keep, I can't keep it all straight. And, and I, didn't, I didn't feel like I was living my unique self. I didn't feel like I was being who I wanted to be. Um, and so I, I just said, that's it. Like, I got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close down the, the sales business. I'm going to close down the, the realtor business, you know. And that's, that was the, the, the switch. He said, well, if you're going to do that, your assistant has a license. Why not just give it to her? Just give it to her. Work out an agreement. She was salaried at the time. Work out an agreement where you, you keep her salary in place and she gets a piece of the commission for all the business you give her and let her take it. And then you just concentrate 100% on the flip business. And that was really the switch that, 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 that blew everything up because a year later we looked at it and then we agreed. Like, look, if she blows it up and, and, and she crashes the business, who cares? Because you're getting ready to throw it in the trash anyway. Right. right. So, <laughs> so we woke up a year later and she had done more deals than we did together. She was more profitable than we were together. And I had flipped more houses than I had done the year before because I had hundred percent focus and I had more time to myself. I spent more time with my wife. I was on, I was dating my wife again. I was spending time with my new, with my brand new daughter. I was enjoying my family. And that was the that was the impact of letting go with the vine. Like I didn't want to give somebody else responsibility. So between that first year and about three years later, we went from one employee to probably over 15 employees, eventually got up to almost 40 employees, and then back down to about, we're at, we're at about 20, 22, 23 employees right now, which is the sweet spot. But in the last six, seven years, I have hired probably 50 people to get back down to the core 22 that I want. I've learned a lot of, look, I've, a lot of bumps and bruises along the way, a lot of fails, a lot of wins, a lot of challenges, but learning to trust people, learning to build teams, learning to create real value in people, learning to um, coach people and, and, and help them grow. Um, that's been not by far the biggest change and the biggest uh, investment that I've made personally um, back into other people. And, and that's, that's been the, that's been the big thing for us. It also sounds like a lot of, you realizing self self awareness, which is really important, right? Like you, 
you wouldn't have realized that you were being you know everyone's oh you're successful joe man you're, you're oh, this cool car and but you're not home with the, with the kids and you're not there with your wife and stuff like that so being self-aware i think is a really you know, big pat on the back because a lot of business owners aren't and to be self-aware in the fact that you are the bottleneck to get out of your own bloody way and then develop the systems because you are stressed to the max and you can't do it all and you don't feel like you don't want to be you i think it's such a such a pretty good look back and, and summary of, of of a journey that has come really full circle. So 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 well done. So maybe talk to me a little bit about some of the systems you did put in place. Like you, you just talked about, you know, the, the, the lady you're going to go throw it in the bin, um, the brokerage service, but then you you hired that out. Um, so you got out of your own way in that case. On the construction side, what did what do you start to, to delegate and outsource to get you out of being that bottleneck situation? Yeah, I mean, we really, we have a lot of great systems in the uh, construction process, uh, all the way from, uh, man, I, I mean, I could go on for probably two hours on the construction side, but uh, a lot of the stuff that we really systemized, systemized and uh, systematized and automated, uh, all the way from, you know, back in the day, right? Like I, I just told you, we would go to Home Depot on every project because we had a big ego and we used to say like, everyone's got to be different. Everyone's got to be unique. They all got to be perfect, right? And we would go and we'd pick out like unique stuff for every project. Well, then we, we changed it up and this is going back years ago to where everything's a level, you know, if it's between one and 150,000, that's a level one, 150 to, to 250 is level two, 250 to 350 is level three. And then above that, we might have a customization program above 450, right? Um, the problem with our own unique market, and this is not normal in a lot of markets, but in New Jersey, we flip houses anywhere from anywhere below 150 is probably a rental property, but. Um, I mean, we build anywhere from 150 to $1.5 million houses just because our market is so diverse. So we needed to have these different levels. And some people, their markets, you know, you might be in Arizona where you're only building $250,000 houses. So you might not need this diversity. Um, but we basically created an A and a B for each level. So I only have basically three levels. Each of them have two colors. A is, be uh, a is gray and B is beige. And, you know, every six months, our designer will go back to Home Depot and she will re-repick the tiles, repick some different colors, change it up slightly, and then just slap it on this on the spreadsheet, and that's it. It's new, and it's a new house. And you know, say what you want, our houses sell just as quick, and they sell for just as much money as all the competition in the neighborhood. Nobody pays attention to the fact that one house three miles away looks exactly like the house six miles away. Like they're not paying attention to it. What they are paying attention to is the quality. Uh, the quality of the install, the quality of the workmanship, making sure it's done properly. They're getting a home inspection report anyway. It's it's a safe, clean environment for them to move into, and they're getting they're getting maximum value for the dollar that they're spending. So, you know, it's systematized. It's easy. It's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a model. And then we also focus on having great general contractors, and and we've gone through dozens and dozens of them to get the same. Is that you know, third party or in house? Third party general contractors. I used to have in house guys. And we had so much different uh, issues with that. And uh, hmm. from, the, from the fact that we had, I used to hire both. I used to have general contractors, third party and in-house. Well, when you say in-house, I mean, general contractor is a third party. I used to have in-house crews that would, right, do, that would that do the would, work. That would do the work. And a lot of times what would happen is we would hire general contractors, third party. And when they wouldn't do the work properly, I would find my guys on the job site cleaning up after them. And I would be paying for it after we already paid the full the full price you know price of the other guy's proposal, and I got to the point where I'm like, dude, what's what's the point of having my own in-house guys if I'm going to go clean up after the other guys? So I found when I had less in-house guys, first of all, I had less headaches. When I had trucks on the road, I would constantly come out in the parking lot and there'd be big dents in the side of the truck. I'd be like, what happened here? 
I don't know, boss. So I'm like, I have frustration all the time. Like I have $300,000 in trucks on the road and I can't even maintain, you know, ins- you know, insurance policies and, you know, accidents and damage and scratches and, you know, busted tires. And I'm like, I don't even want to deal with this anymore. Like I don't have time for the bandwidth of all the aggravation. So I got rid of all that stuff. And I found that when you deal with really, really good general contractors that understand the quality that you want, they understand the delivery timeframes that you want, and they understand that, that they're going to they're gonna work with you on making sure that they get around to the projects that need to be done in a certain priority, they become part of the team. They become part of the family, and they know the pricing you need. They know when it needs to get done, and, and they're not going to go anywhere else because you're going to continue to feed them over and over and over again. So we have the same core five to seven groups. Um, that are continually being fed and they love it and it works out well. So um, that has worked out for us better than having the in-house crew. Now I still have one in-house crew um, and, and they can't, they kind of run around, they do intermittent uh, carpentry work and they do some management of the other guys. And of course you need runners back and forth and stuff like that. So right. we keep them full time. Yeah. Um, but we're, we've significantly uh, reduced the, the in-house payroll. Um, from that perspective, and we've really gone to more general contracting because those guys get paid for finishing work, and I like that right. better. Right. It's interesting that so you are using <laughs> their licenses, right? These are all third part, like they've got their own license, they've got their yeah. own crews because yep. you know the engineer and me, and I as I build my own business is like I want to control everything, and it's yeah. interesting that you've gone down that model. You've realized it's a pain in the ass, and yep. so are you leaving profits on the table? Absolutely, because you're at. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. We're a volume-based business. I mean, right. you know, for me, I want to, I want to, I want to flip what I want to flip, and I'm, I'm okay leaving margin if it takes less aggravation. I mean, we're at the point now where my COO is managing 18 projects at a time, and he's not really in the, he's not even in that space very much because our GCs are so well adapted to what we have going on that he doesn't even really need to check on them, but more than once a week, you know, they, they know what they're doing. So very rarely does he even need to get, you know, involved in you know, unless something's totally behind schedule and that doesn't even happen very often. So it's a very well-oiled machine at this point um, to the point where I rarely step foot on any of our projects. I don't even see them anymore. I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now, back into the show. Well, one thing you, you, you mentioned just before, and uh, I want to ta- talk a little bit about it, is ego. You, 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 and I think ego, just to what I said about control and wanting to do it all and have it all in-house and stuff like that, but it goes back to self-awareness and, and checking the ego at the door. Um, I don't know if you ever read the book by Ryan Holiday, Ego is the Enemy, um, but really good book about ego and how that really is is the enemy to to growth in business and and so again kudos to you for being self-aware to understand that that the ego was the problem and 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 that's where it's driven from all these conflicts of interest and blah blah conflicts, but conflicts and and how the business is not scaling like it should and and really systemizing it and so um and understanding what your strengths are and leaning into those strengths i think is uh, is really really important um one thing I do want to get into is a little bit about the recession proof of flipping, right? We're, in, we're long in the tooth here in the, you know, you, you started back before 2008. It's been over 10 years. Um, 
How are you recession-proofing your business today and, and particularly around the flipping space? Because there's always in the real estate world, everyone's like, oh, flipping's going to be, you know, high-end flipping's going to go out the window if, if we hit a recession again. So, so how are you preparing for the up-and-coming doom and gloom? Well, I mean, first of all, I've been prepared for this since day one. We, we always have multiple exit strategies. That's how we've started from day one. Every time I buy something, I'm capable of uh, buying and holding it and keeping it as a rental property and having the BRR method, right? Um, I, I'm, cap I'm capable of selling it and, re and you know, rehabbing it and selling it. Um, I'm capable of doing lease, you know, lease purchase options on these things because when we buy something, especially in the size uh, of uh, in the market that we're at and the, and the size of the purchase, um, a lot of times, you know, if it's a full rehab, we're going to spend X. If we're going to keep it as a rental, we could spend a lot less um, on the rental side of it. And we can keep it that way. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think that I think the biggest challenge that a lot of rehabbers face is they have that they're 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 one trick ponies, right? They they want to do their thing. And like you keep going back to ego, which I, I, I talk about a lot in the rehab space. You know, you got guys that are like, you know, I'm not doing this job if it's not going to be the way that it should be with, you know, granite countertops and it's got to have ceramic everywhere. And you got to put you got to put, you know, stainless steel and you you got to do everything perfect. And, you know, the thing about it is you, you have to know what's necessary to resell it and you have to know what's not necessary so that you don't overspend. And you have a lot of rehabbers out there that spend way too much money. They're, I mean, they're moving walls unnecessarily. You know, the stuff that, that you don't need to do to do a proper rehab. Again, people want clean. They want relatively maintenance-free. They just don't want to walk into something that's going to cause major chaos after they live there, you know, six months, a year from now. Um, and and they, want to, they want a safe place for their family to live. So if you can provide them a safe place that's in, in good condition, that, um, you know, doesn't have major issues, and you've, and you've actually done that, you know, that, that due diligence, you, you've done, you know, made sure that the, the major systems are in good shape, then, then, then you have a good chance of selling that thing for the number that you want to sell it for. You can spend the extra 10, 20, $30,000 doing all the other stuff, but that's for your ego. That's not for the buyer. So I know I've said a lot there, but you know, I think no, that, no, no, that's good. Cause I think, yeah. I think the, the, have you ever got caught with your pants down where you needed to have pivoted from say a rehab to a, a, a burst strategy? Oh, also, yeah, all the time. But yeah, you know, so, so for those people yeah. who don't know, buy, yeah. uh, re renovate, you know, rehab and refi and whatever, all that sort of good stuff. But you know, where you've gone to that, we'll call it level five. I don't know what what level they are, and and then you had to back it down to a rental because it, it wasn't selling or wasn't getting traction. Well, so so for that to the, to that point, um, we we if you if you had uh, called me uh, two years ago, we had nine to twelve. Um, of those eight nine hundred thousand dollar houses being built at the same time, now I have two, and that's a product of you know I see that I see the market softening right. Um, we when we have um, you know eighteen properties going right now, sixteen of those are below two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. You know if I get into any of those four hundred plus properties, they're going to be really fat spread properties that even if they are four hundred fifty thousand dollars, I probably could rent them out uh, in a downturn right. So I, I don't think that, uh, first of all, I, I couldn't do the BRR method on a $1.5 million property, especially when the taxes in New Jersey on that house would be $45,000 a year. Um, but, but, you know, again, those are the, those are the risks we take as, as investors. You know, you just got to start to really insulate yourself, uh, stack cash, uh, make sure that you have your investors. And I think the other thing is conversations with investors. This is something that we as real estate investors, as a community, I don't think have enough open conversation with private lenders. It's not a conversation you can have with hard money or your bank, obviously. But when you have private money 
you have to prepare them for what happens in a downturn, right? Like what's the worst that can happen to your money? Well, if you're smart and you're dealing with a smart uh, business owner, real estate investor, well, we'll protect the, the asset, we'll protect the, 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 uh, the principal, but you know, maybe, maybe interest has to be held off for a little bit. Maybe we have to modify it. Maybe we have to come up with a different game plan. Maybe I have to rent it and pay you rent. Like there's a lot of other things that can happen when you're talking with private money. Cause it's somebody's, it's somebody's private money. You know what I mean? You don't have to, there's a lot of modification that can happen to keep the asset protected when, when you get into some sort of pinch. And that's worth having that conversation with your private investor rather than bury your head in the sand and pretend nothing's wrong. And next thing you know, you're in some sort of foreclosure situation. You can have those open conversations. And I think that's missed with a lot of uh, private money borrowers. Um, the, other, the other piece is, um, um, I'm sorry, I was just trying to think of the other piece I was just thinking about is, uh, oh, oh, explaining to a private money borrower that, hey, in the downturn, get, get ready because there's going to be a whole lot of doom and gloom, but that's the time we want to buy more, right? Like getting, getting them excited for the fact that the downturn is coming and you're going to see the news and everyone's going to be scared to death. And that's the time that you should want to double down with me because I'm going to be buying deals at a better rate than I ever have before. That's when sellers are going to start to get super loose because right now it's the most competitive time in the last five years that I've been able to buy. And we, I've never had a hard time buying houses and we're having a hard time buying houses, right? Everybody's a wholesaler. Everybody's a wholesaler. Everybody's putting stuff under contract and they can't close, right? Um, you know, every seller you talk to has had multiple offers on their property and it's not even for sale. So, you know, I think those type of things, those are good conversations, they're healthy conversations to have with your private money people um, so that when the, when the inevitable happens, you're prepared to take those steps forward. Yep. Yep. No, I, I think you bring up two really good points. One is that it's in and around, I just did actually a two-part series on this podcast around um, re, uh, uh, what do I call it? Reanalyzing, not reanalyzing, readjusting investors' return expectations. Because I'm in the multifamily space, large multifamily plus 200 units, and I'm seeing deals are hard to pencil right now. So you're seeing on the resi side, I'm seeing it on the multifamily side. And where, but people still want to get money out there. And what's a good return? And you got to have those conversations with investors and say, hey, well, this is still a really good return. Like three or four years ago, you're getting X. We're now sort of looking at a Y return, but I'm in a better market. I mean, you know, this is what I'm pivoting to. Uh, and having those open conversations, I think, is really important uh, mm -hmm. from, for, to keep your money continuing yeah. to, to churn through, keep, keep you transactional, um, but also to keep them aware of where the market's headed. So with, with that being said, um, what, are you, what are you seeing? Like, you, know, you, you just say you've, it's, it's, you've never been so difficult to buy a deal in the last five years. So what's your, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's your two cents on where we're headed in, in today's market? I mean, I, I keep saying it over and over again, it's going to shift. It's definitely going to shift. I, I think it's going to soften. I definitely don't see this major impact, this uh, kind of doom and gloom stuff that everyone's talking about. You're, you're not going to see 2008 again. I mean, look, there, there is no, I, I, I liken it to this, right? In 2007, when I bought one of my first houses, I walked into, this is back when I was working for my dad after, right after I got back, get back to New Jersey. And I walked into my first uh, mortgage uh, lender and I wrote down my income, right? And she looked at it and she says, uh, uh, just do me a favor, just double that. And I went, what are you talking about? And she goes, just, just take that and double it. And I go, well, that would be like lying on the application, wouldn't it? And she <laughs> goes, legal document. don't, no, don't worry about it. No one's looking at it. I'm the only one who looks at it. Wow. And I was like, and I was like, 
what the fuck? Well, so, <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen right now, right? right. It's so hard to get a mortgage right now. I'm, I, I own a brokerage, right? It's mm -hmm. next to impossible to get a broker. Like, like, like if you ask any broker in America, they'll tell you it's so hard to go to closing because the mortgage process is so damn difficult. And, and you know, they're, they're underwriting and re-underwriting and re-verifying and asking for pay stubs 15 times. And, and it is so difficult to get, to get a mortgage. So, so, and rates are as low as they've been, I don't know, ever, right? So, so we definitely don't have any type of mortgage issue going on. Um, I know in some places in the country that the prices have gone through the roof, like particularly California. But I can tell you, even in, in New Jersey, we're barely back to the prices we were in 2000, yeah, 2008. We're certainly not having bidding wars everywhere, anywhere in New Jersey. I mean, maybe some small pockets in certain shore communities and things like that. But you know, when a house goes on the market, you're lucky if you get asking price, you're not gonna get people to bid and do bidding wars on, your, on the property. There's none of that going on in my local market and a lot of local markets that I'm talking to people on. Um, so like, we're not in this, this fire market that people think we're in. Now the stock market's insane, obviously, but you know what? What is going to crash? You hear people talk about, you know, student loan crash. You hear people talk about car loan crashes. There's a lot of this other uproar, but none of that can create what the mortgage industry created in 2007 and eight. There, it, none of that stuff can create. And I'm not an economist, by the way. So whoever's listening to this podcast, obviously, my, my I'm not. You know, my word is not the word to take. But you know, can the market correct and soften? Yes. Is it going to change the real estate market by 25 percent? Like. I don't think it's possible. Um, I think it can change and soften things a little bit. Is it going to make a, a major upheaval for our industry? Um, for my industry, I'm looking forward to it because it's going to take a lot of the schmucks and put them back to work and get them out of the wholesale business and get them out of the investment business because they don't belong there anyway. Um, and, you know, they're really just, they're just gumming up the system and they're making offers and they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, they're sending out contracts with no anticipation of closing. And, you know, honestly, they need more training and they shouldn't be in the industry. And, they're probably going to create laws around what we do right now because of all the people that are that are actually breaking laws and not doing it properly. Um, you know, whereas uh, there there are people like us who are putting houses under contract and actually have the ability to close. Um, so it's frustrating um, to, to, to say the least. But um, anyway, that was a long winded. Yeah, no, way you, of you, you, no, no, you, you bring up some really good yeah. points, and I think the the whole in and around the lending space uh, about being more due diligent from a banking point of view was just. Yeah, it was those ninja loans back in the day was just dumb, oh, you know, like come, come from Australia where where we've always had kind of checks and balances like that and to see the states being, you know, the the, the, the leader in the world economy. Um, and it was still funny that I, when I first moved to the United States, people paid me literally in a check and I was like, what am I supposed to do with a check? Because yeah. <laughs> we don't have, you know, Insane. but to, to, to have all these financial systems that seemed fundamentally broken because you wanted the American dream of owning a house, but like you couldn't afford it. And to your point of like double my money, I'm lying on a legal document that can't yeah. be legal. But, and, and yeah. people are you know, <laughs> bitching and moaning about the, the, the hoops you got to jump through, but it's only to protect everyone and protect the economy. And I think that's, you know, just get your, excuse me, get your shit together and you, you won't have an issue getting lend, lending. So, yeah. um, but, but, but no, very interesting points. And, and I think that you, you summarize it really well that, that you're, you're, you're in a space, you, you, you put your brand, you put your name behind your brand and you're doing it the right way. And in, in doing that, you're also recession proofing your business. Um, you, you're also being very diversified across a number of different, you know, brokerage, uh, selling you know, brokerage on both the debt and the sales side, uh, construction um, and, and understanding your multiple exit strategies. So, so it's a very, very interesting. Mate, I do want to be very respectful of your time. I don't want to, I could continue talking to you for hours, but yeah. um, 
At the end of every show, I do like to get into my top five investing tips. Ready to get into it? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? My daily habit is my routine. I practice the Miracle Morning almost every day, six, seven days a week. Um, if you haven't read the Miracle Morning, go get the book. It's life-changing. Awesome, awesome. Who is the number one, inf- or who is the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, that's a good question. There's a lot of them. Um, a lot of them. Uh, I would have to say off the top of my head, my mentor, Mark Evans, Mark Evans DM. Uh, he's, a, he's a real estate guy, real estate guru, and uh, probably number one influencer. Awesome. What's the number one tool, either software, hardware, or hardware related that you use in your real estate business on a daily basis? Slack. I run, I run nine companies nice. on Slack. Nice. Yeah, I was, just, I, just, I was just on my mastermind call that I run uh, with multifamily guys and I was showing them our processes in Slack and I tell you what, Slack is so much better than email. Like trying to find out what, what do we, what do we each, each project has its own Slack channel and you can just go back through the Slack channel and see what was said. So uh, really good stuff. Yep. Mate, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date and what did you learn from that? Man, I don't look at things as failures. I look at them as like stepping stones. I don't know, that's a challenge. Um, <laughs> It's a challenge. It's uh, a tough question. I knew you were going to ask me that one too. Um, I don't look at them as failures. Honestly, I've made a lot of bad hires. Let's put it to you that way. I, I've made a lot of bad hires, but I really would, I would do it all again. I would do it all again because I think when you make bad hires, it teaches you how to make good hires. And I would not know how to make good hires if I didn't make bad hires. Sure, sure. No, that's, that's, that's a good piece of advice. Any, any yeah. advice in and around that? about what you look for now a good hire yeah yeah 100 percent. I, I i have to like you i mean genuinely like you like i have to want to have to go have a beer with you and Boom. hang out at Love the bar and if, and if i don't want to have a conversation with you you're not working for me right no i think that's that's great and it's one of my mottos as well like if i can't have a beer with you i don't really want to do business with you you know 100 <laughs> percent. yeah yeah yep. mate um with everything that's going on in your world people want to reach out to you and to continue to continue the conversation where do they go uh, JoeEvangelisti.com, and uh, I, I don't know what to spell it for you. I guess you're going to post it somewhere, right? <laughs> yes, we will. We will post it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, mate, um, look, I want to thank you for jumping on the show today. Just a quick bit of a recap of some of the things that I've taken away from today's conversation. Just in terms of your story, uh, I think it was really awesome pivoting, going from you know the U.S. Navy into the mindset of wanting to take control of yourself, understanding that itch within inside of you, and going and scratching that itch. And then learning along the way, uh, you know, evolving, understanding that oh, I don't need to control everything, and my ego needs to get the hell out of my out of my way. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to have a life that I want to have with my my family and and, and, your, and your kids. So so really awesome around that. And I think you gave some really good light and and real down to earth type of advice on just the struggles that the day-to-day people like yourself, um, an entrepreneur goes through. You know, you had the, the shiny car and everyone's, oh, wow, Joe, you're doing so well. But in reality, you, you weren't because you're, you're struggling, working 100-hour weeks. So I think it's that was really, really key uh, for me taking uh, t- as a takeaway from today's show. Um, did, did I leave anything out? No, man, I think you covered it, man. I, I really appreciate you having me on here. And uh, that, was, that was a good interview. I, that, was good. that was fun. Cool, man. Well, look, I want to thank you for, for again coming on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Reed. Appreciate it. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Joe. Please get over to his website and check out all that he has to offer because he's doing some pretty incredible stuff in and around his business. 
I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to continue to learn to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we'll do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack.